My oldest son's birthday is in five days. To him and to Cardassians everywhere, I make the following pledge. By the time his birthday dawns, there will not be a single Klingon alive inside Cardassian territory or a single Maquis colony left within our borders. Cardassia will be made whole. All that we have lost will be ours again. And anyone who stands in our way will be destroyed. This I vow with my life's blood. For my son, for all our sons. Babble Psychobabble, where art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your resident Trek nerd and Herogen BDSM dungeon master. And I'm Elizabeth, banana pancake aficionado and student of humanoid psychology. Our mission is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. This week, Elizabeth and I wrap up our five-part series on the Maquis by taking some time to look at the aftermath of the insurrection. Content warning this week for discussions of self-harm. We return to Voyager's fourth season for the 1998 episode called Hunters, written by Jerry Taylor and directed by David Livingston. The crew are elated to receive a signal from Starfleet Command along the Herogen Relay Network. As they approach the relay station to retrieve the bulk of the message, they encounter a small vessel with a brutally murdered alien occupant, foreshadowing an encounter with the station's owners. Janeway and Seven begin to download the message in bits and pieces and are surprised to learn that at least part of the communication are personal letters to the crew. These are letters. These are letters from home. I can tell you. I've never seen the crew this excited. This is as close as they've come to their families in almost four years. Many of the letters provide much yearned for comfort to the crew. However, not all the news is good. Janeway receives a letter from Mark, her fiancé, and learns that, thinking her dead, he moved on and married someone else. Relevant to our theme, Chakotay learns about the eradication of the Maquis back in the Alpha Quadrant. Who's it from, Commander? An old friend. The person who recruited me into the Marquis. Why would she be writing you? Something terrible has happened. I read that letter for an hour before I could accept it. Now I have to tell everyone else, and I'm not sure how to do it. It's over, Belana. There are no more Marquis. What are you saying? There are thousands of us. All wiped out. It seems the Cardassians have an ally. A species from the Gamma Quadrant who supplied them with ships and weapons. Everyone except us is dead? Just about. Spira and a few lucky ones are in prison. No. Solana. Don't! You don't try to console me. I don't want to be comforted. Those were our friends. Good people willing to put their lives on the line for something they believed in. And now you're telling me that they are gone. That they are slaughtered. Those are the risks we all took. We knew where it could lead. It's not right, and you know it. I will make someone pay. I swear I will. 
if we ever get back. Complicating this are more complex relationships between the crew and their old lives. Harry is anxious to get a letter from his folks, but Tom can't imagine any good news from his past. There is, of course, the plot in all of this. Seven and Tuvok take a shuttle closer to the relay station and try to tech-tech a way to help them retrieve the signal better. The Herogen arrive and disable the shuttle before it can escape back to Voyager, and the pair are captured. They awaken on the Herogen ship in a fulsome street fair fetish garb. Voyager catches up with the Herogen and Janeway demands the return of her people. She decides to use the relay station, which is powered by a tiny black hole, because whoever built them were insane, to help disable the Herogen and rescue Tuvok and Seven. Unfortunately, this method collapses the signal, and the Herogen end up destroying the relay altogether. Voyager escapes with most of the message from Starfleet, but the relay network is disabled. In the end, Torres is able to deliver the letter from the Kims, but Paris is left to speculate about what his letter from his father may have said. One of the most surprising things about this episode to me was the bittersweetness of getting all those letters. You know, like they've been wishing for this for years at this point and they finally get it. And it's not the sunshine and rainbows that I think they like maybe naively were thinking it would be. Oh, I'm sure Voyager will be fine. But I'm worried that the crew might be a different story. I think they were hoping mail call would become a regular part of their day. Look what you've been through the last few days. We finally make a connection with home, and then it's ripped away from us. We managed to make another enemy who's going to try and hunt us down and destroy us. And on top of that... It's all right, you can say it. On top of all that, I got a Dear John letter. Wished that home was still the way it was when they left, and then that realization that it's not. You know, I think that's like... I don't know, just an unexpected but not consequence of finally being able to get in contact with them, you know? Yeah, I mean, it It speaks to that whole idea of acceptance, and that's been a more muted but important subtext to the whole Maki story is this idea that these are people who cannot accept um, the circumstances that they've been dealt Um and in the Alpha Quadrant, at least, up until the massacre, anyway, uh, they had the option of doing something about that frustration that they felt. And here we are uh, with Jacoté and Balan and the rest of the Maquis um, not being able to, to continue, not being able to really direct that feeling anywhere, but it's shared. And that's one of the interesting things about the whole family theme on Voyager is that even though their experiences and the particulars of their lives and what they came from are different, they share this common um, issue and in that way learn to empathize with each other despite their differences. And that's, you know, very Star Trek, of course. But it's it's sad. I mean, <laughs> another great showcase for Kate Mulgrew, right? The way she reads that letter. And we don't know what oh it says God, yet, but it's just, face. oh, yeah. Oh, like, you know, yeah, no, you know, like, that's just the subtlety of her facial expressions. is just masterful. Oh, Kate Mulgrew, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But it it brings up a related point, which is, you know, so Tom is, has this angst about his relationship with his father, which is fully justified, um, given what we see over the series. Um, And his feeling is the more everybody gets excited about these letters from home the more I don't want any part of it. Maybe because what I have on Voyager is so much better than anything I ever had back there. 
I just don't want the reminder. Excuse me if I can't feel terribly sorry for you. I learned this morning that a lot of my friends are dead. And I've gone from being so angry that I wanted to kill someone to crying for an hour. And now I'm just trying to, to accept it and move on. She does feel sorry for him. It's just that I think she just doesn't have the, uh, what's the word? Capacity? Yeah, that, that's a great word, capacity, for holding on to anyone else's feelings but her own in that moment. Yeah, and and that's definitely like a skill that's built or like a muscle that's strengthened is is, mm. is your ability to like hold the experience of somebody else even when you're like dealing with your own really heavy shit, you know? Um, it's, it's something that as therapists we're like learning to do all the time. It's like, how can you hold what, this, what someone else is dealing with and your own stuff, you know, at the same time. Um, and so it's hard, you know, it's hard for us. We have to learn how to do it. I can't imagine like a layman doing it or, you know, with like, with no, no, I, I shouldn't say it that way, but like, it's difficult. It's a difficult skill that is not typically taught because emotional intelligence is not something that is taught. Hence why we need therapy. So box end. <laughs> Well, it begs the question for me, um, as the professional feeling handler that you are, um, <laughs> I mean, that's a better word. Um, is it, generally speaking, I know there's no, there's never a single answer, but is it, generally speaking, healthier to be realistic or to be optimistic? You know, because before they got these letters, they were, quote unquote, allowed to imagine that life back home was however they wanted it to be within reason. And, you know, Jane, we could imagine that Mark was waiting for her for four years and Bolana and Chakotay could imagine that the Maquis were still fighting the fight. Um, you know, yeah. but now that they have, now that they're confronted with this reality, they, they don't have that luxury anymore. They, they can't deny yeah. what's really happening. And I just wonder what's given the fact that it doesn't really make a difference physically, you know, it doesn't, they're whatever it is at this point, 60,000 light years away from, from their home, they're still likely never going to see anyone again anyway. But just knowing what has changed changes their whole demeanor and their emotional state. And you yeah. know what I mean? So what which do you think is actually healthier? I mean, I think it really depends on context, just like how you laid it out. Um, I think in the absence of information, what's the harm in being optimistic and having hope? I actually think it's the lack of hope that gets people in trouble more often. Um, but when that when you do have that information presented to you, then I think there is an acceptance and a realism that you want to strive for, even if that does include a grieving process for the idealism that you've lost. So, so short answer, I think it depends on context. But... I think an interesting turn with, with getting the information, you know, as as devastating as it is to learn that the Maquis have been annihilated, which was probably not one of the possibilities that, the, you know, Bolana and Chakotay and all the other Maquis, like, had on their imaginations for, like, what could be happening, you know, back in the Alpha Quadrant. Um, you know, I think it also changes the context of their own identities and, like, what it is they're going through. You know, like, I think when they thought the Maquis were there, they thought that they were the ones like exiled and separated. But somehow by being in the Delta Quadrant, 
they actually survived. Yeah, it flips. You know? It flips. Suddenly they go from being, like, I don't want to say victims. I don't think that's, like, exactly the right word. But, you know, they, they go from being the people who have lost something to people who have still lost something. And something was certainly taken from them in that the when the caretaker threw them to the Delta Quadrant, in addition to just that violation of autonomy, they lost the ability to, you know, as we've seen over the last four episodes, choosing to become a terrorist and to become a Maquis, you know, it's not an easy life. Whatever yeah. convoluted political story is around that, um, it, it, it entails hardship. And so they, these characters made that choice, made a sacrifice to begin with to be in the Maquis. And then our, their agency to continue that fight is taken away from them. But the stigma of being Maquis amongst all these other Starfleet people stays. So they get yeah. all the worst parts and none of the quote-unquote best parts, other than, I guess, not being yeah. in jail. And then to suddenly have that flipped, right, where that that circumstance of being in the Delta Quadrant is the only thing that kept them alive. Um, and all of their friends to be pretty much to be dead is uh, yeah, it's yeah. whiplash. I bet there's some survivor's guilt happening yeah. in there too, you know, and suddenly the thing that you thought was your hardship is actually what saved you and how awful that feels, you know, to have been so far away from the people you care about and for them to suffer. And you just, you know, happened to be spared that like it, it, there's a lot of complicated feelings that come up about that, you know, why me, you know, and why not them, you know, and there's a lot of like moral wrestling that happens when, when that kind of complex is triggered. jump forward a bit to Voyager's fifth season and the episode Extreme Risk. It was written by Kenneth Billa, directed by Cliff Bowl, and also aired in 1998. Belana Torres is doing some death-defying skydiving, literally, as she forces the computer to disengage the safety protocols before jumping. Her behavior is odd in other ways as well. She's handing off assignments to Seven of Nine, with whom she's regularly butted heads over the last year. She's apathetic, distant, even from Tom. She's sleepwalking through her relationships and her work, but she does continue to show signs of life on the holodeck, where we find her again disengaging the safeties before getting into a deadly brawl with some Cardassians. Meanwhile, the Voyager finds itself in a race with the Malon to recover the very fancy probe from a gas giant. This takes the form of designing a new vessel, and inadvertently explaining how they've been replacing all those shuttles over the last four years. Seven discovers that the Malon are also building a vessel to go after the probe, putting pressure on the crew to finish quickly. In the midst of the construction on the Delta Flyer, which is what they're calling their new ship, Bolana seizes the opportunity to return to the holodeck and run a simulation of the flight, but with the safeties off again. The simulation nearly kills her, but Jakote happens upon her unconscious body before it's too late. We pick up with her in sickbay where Janeway confronts her about her behavior. When the doctor examined you, he found evidence of internal bleeding, fractured vertebrae, contusions, cranial trauma. Some of his injuries were life-threatening, Bolana. Do I look like I'm dying? According to the holodeck logs, you've been spending a lot of time there over the last few months. If I were to check, would I find that you've been running other programs without safety protocols? Would you like to look at my personal logs as well? 
Come on, I'm worried about you. If there's something wrong, I want to help. Nothing's wrong. Okay? No, it's not okay. And until you decide to be more forthcoming, you'll remain under the doctor's supervision. Which means you're off the shuttle project. I'm sorry. Janeway also authorizes Jacote to dig around in Tor's holodeck history. This leads him to a little Maquis-style confrontation with his old friend. He forces her into the holodeck and activates a program that she created and ran only once, right after he delivered her the news about the massacre of the Maquis and Hunters. The program is a violent depiction of the massacre. Then you shut it down and started running the most dangerous programs you could find, with the safeties off. Why? This is ridiculous. I'm leaving. Computer, seal the doors. You can't do this! The hell I can't. You're not going anywhere until you tell me what's going on. Inspired to confront her emotional damage, she invites herself to the launch of the flyer and uses her expertise to keep the vessel together so they can recover the magic probe. Uh, again, we have this running theme, Elizabeth, with these Maquis episodes of food <laughs> being a central emotional sort of trigger or lodestone um, to the way these people think. <clears throat> and in this case, it's uh, the banana pancakes, right? That yeah. kind of bookend sort of the uh, the episode. You know, I, I think it can read as a little cliche sometimes, but uh, that feeling of something that you, you, you go to in your life when you need to feel better. So just some activity or uh, food or whatever, just something that you can count on reliably to improve your mood and you go to it and you experience it and it doesn't work and you find yourself just as depressed or angry or whatever you're going through as you were beforehand. Well? Delicious. Despite it feeling like a small thing, it's a it's a pancake. Uh, the fact that it doesn't do that thing for you that you rely on, it, I think, can be pretty devastating. That's one of the symptoms of depression is suddenly the things that you typically loved do not give you joy anymore. Mm. And it, it's really disorienting. And it, it's just like, well, if, if this doesn't help, what can? Yeah, it, it's almost like nothing is working the way you expect it to, you know, and like nothing feels good, you know. Yeah. Um, it's a really, it's a really hard place to be, you know, it, it, it ends up being like the snake eating its own tail, you know, like it's just, it's very hard to get out of it. I, I thought you were the doctor making a house call. He thinks I'm suffering from clinical depression. Are you depressed? What are you? The new ship's counselor? <sighs> no, just a friend. This whole thing is so ridiculous. I don't report a few scrapes and suddenly Janeway thinks there's something wrong with me. <laughs> Typical Starfleet, huh? You know, there are a number of things this episode is criticized for. It's essentially pretty heavily criticized. Um, and I'd, I'd love to go through them with you because a lot of those criticisms strike me as people who think they know about mental health but maybe don't. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll get some... A.K.A. most people? <laughs> right. We'll get some verification. Uh, the first thing is with respect to the timeline here. Now, Voyager, of course, yeah. has recurrent issues with continuity. I mentioned the shuttlecraft thing. They've gone through like half a dozen at least by now. Somehow they fit them in the... Sh or they're rebuilding them. Maybe that's what's implied here um, for being generous. But the issue is so Hunters aired half a season uh, before this episode, plus a summer break. Um, and so okay. 
uh, it's been months, and in the intervening episodes between Hunters and Extreme Risk, we haven't seen any sign that Torres is dealing with any kind of depression or, or really hung up on this uh, issue of her friends being dead. But we're told yeah. in this episode that she apparently ran this program, you know, uh, with the with the, seeing her friends get slaughtered and then shut it off and then started harming herself. Yeah, for months. Uh, for yeah, months. she's been doing this for months. But this is like the first indication we get to see like behind the veil of like what's going on for her. There weren't really there weren't really Easter eggs like leading up to this, you know. Yeah, and that's, you know, they wanted to do this episode about self-harm. Roxanne Dawson, the actress who plays Torres, really wanted to dig into that. It was appealing to her as something to, to talk about as like a message episode. Uh, and so they yeah. found this way to fit it in with her character and the continuity, but they didn't have the foresight in the writer's room to plant the seeds going along the way uh, and people get frustrated by that and it makes it seem like her depression is unrealistic i think there's fairness to that criticism you know like um having so many shows now are like doing a really good job of doing that world and character building so like so that you you do see the long arc and the development but you know voyager and most star trek's more episodical like that was their like structural, you know, nature. And I think depression can look like that. You know, I think people really, people who are struggling, who don't think sharing that struggle will help, hide. They hide it as long as they can and until, until it becomes unsustainable. And I think for Bellana, it probably took a couple months before it got really unsustainable. Um, I mean, it's never sustainable. Like, like I, I, you know, I'll put it that way, but to the point where it's getting so dysfunctional that she can't hide it anymore. But I, I do think there's a lot of people hiding, um, how much pain they're in. I I don't think, Mm. and a lot of people get surprised by that. You know, people don't know the warning signs. They don't know what to look, look out for. That's a really good point. And as I think, more carefully about the timeline here you know this is the third episode of the fifth season and the premiere of the fifth season was an episode called night i don't know if you remember that episode but um uh, essentially what is portrayed to us is that over the summer break between the end of the fourth season and the beginning of the fifth season the voyager has been in this like void of space where there's nothing seemingly there's basically nothing for them to do they kind of stock up on power and they're just sort of going. And Janeway okay. gets really, really depressed. People get really on edge, you know, and essentially all people have to do with their time is think about their circumstance that they're in. It started when we entered this. What does the crew call it? The Void. Charming. Oh, what I wouldn't give for a few Borg cubes about now. Anything for a little distraction. Strange as it sounds, I almost long for the days when we were under constant attack. No time to stop and think about how we got stranded in the Delta Quadrant. We had the means to get home, but using it would have put an innocent people at risk. So we decided to stay. No, no, no. I decided to stay. I made that choice for everyone. Catherine. I made an error in judgment, Chakotay. It was short-sighted and it was selfish. And now all of us are paying for my mistake. And given that, I can see that lack of distraction contributing to, like, making a tipping point for Bolana, and getting her yeah. to where she, now she can't quite hide it as well as she had been. And, yeah, it makes sense. 
yeah, she can't hide it from herself, you know, or from others, you know, and um, it's funny you describing that. I also start to feel a sense of like panic and anxiety. I'd be like, oh no, I have nothing to distract me, even though I know that like you need to like feel your feelings mm. and like be present for your life, <laughs> even though I know that's what you should be doing. Part of me is just like, oh, 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 like, you know, those early days of the pandemic when we were all locked away, like those were hard. Those were yeah. hard because, you know, for, for better and mostly worse, when we are faced with difficult feelings and experiences, we try to avoid them. You know, we make ourselves like a lot of people make themselves really, really busy, you know, as a way yeah. to avoid looking at like what's actually going on for them. And then you take that business away and people don't have a healthier coping mechanism to be present with those kind of feelings. It's tough. It's really, mm -hmm. really tough. Yeah. And I, so that also could be like, that could be maybe where it turned yeah. where suddenly like she could kind of keep it like under wraps underneath the surface. But when, when all that um, distraction and busyness went away, it just grew exponentially. Um, Cause that's what repressed feelings do. They grow. You can't get rid of them by ignoring them. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. And we have this stereotype about depression that it always manifests a little bit like we see here where, you know, Belana is distracted and not really engaging. I think that's not inaccurate, but we have this idea that if it doesn't look like that, then it's that's the only way depression can look, right? Where it can manifest to others, at least, in many different ways, including being really busy, as you said. I don't know. I, I don't I don't really want to expand like the definition of depression that much. I feel like that's like way out of scope for like my ability to like, you know, diagnose or even conceptualize. But but one way I think about depression, you know how we have the fight, flight, freeze kind of responses to stress. Mm -hmm. Depression is essentially freeze. Depression is everything is shut down. There's nothing you can do to escape your situation everything sucks, everything is numb, you know, like you're numbing yourself to the pain, but you're also numbing yourself to everything else. Like mm -hmm. you can't selectively shut off emotions or experiences. It's kind of all, it, it's a little bit of all or nothing. And, and I, to me, that's how I kind of conceptualize depression is you're in a situation that is so terrible that you don't think you can escape that the bet that your body as a means of protection just shuts everything down, conserves energy to try to just like keep you alive long enough until the threat is over. But if the threat never really goes away, that's depression. But it's like that's like a almost a beat for beat uh, plot description of night. <laughs> they the yeah premiere episodes. That's good. Uh, there are other aspects that are criticized that I, I want to uh, drill down with you a little bit. Uh, the next yeah. one would be the issue of privacy. <laughs> so uh, after Janeway relieves Torres of duty, uh, she's in her ready room with Chakotay in Paris and, uh, you know, asks them. Tom, you had no idea about these injuries or how she got them. You think all these injuries have been happening on the holodeck? Where else? <sighs> I hate to go digging around in someone's personal holodeck programs, but if she won't tell us what's going on, I don't think we have much choice. Tom, what do you think? He's right. Start digging. You know, if Tom's her boyfriend, 
and Chakotay's her friend and her boss, it's like, uh, you know, <laughs> I, 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 th- that struck me as like, really? You have the authority to do that? You didn't talk to the doctor? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a little odd. Yeah, it's a little odd. There's kind of like a, a, a big blurring of lines and, and like multiple like dual relationships. Like I'm your boss and your friend, you know, but like, can you be both at the same time? Um, it's tricky. You know, it, it, it's tricky because in an ideal situation, there would be other people and structures in place that A, would be able to like provide Balana the support that she needs, but two, would protect her privacy in that kind of way. But because they're, you know, they're stranded in the Delta Quadrant, you know, like they yeah. only have each other. Like I, 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 it's not great, but I get it, you know, and we live in an imperfect world with imperfect solutions and we're trying to be better. And this is one step along that broken ladder or broken staircase. I'm going to, you know, don't mix mm-hmm. your metaphors, Elizabeth. <laughs> gotcha. Um, but, you know, I do see some parallels between, you know, as, um, as a psychotherapist, how I'm being trained to like clinically manage suicidal clients. And that's one of the few exceptions where like we're allowed to breach confidentiality. Um, you know, for the most part, with a co- only very few exceptions, everything that like is said in the therapy room stays in the therapy room. Like mm-hmm. you don't talk about it with anybody. But essentially, you can you can break confidentiality when you need to protect someone, um, and either either that's someone else, like a child or a dependent adult or uh, someone who's elderly. You know, some like someone who's at risk. Um, similarly, like if a client says like, I'm going to kill so-and-so on this date with this, like that's enough, like you have, you have a duty to protect the other person. And similarly, there's like a duty to protect your own client from hurting themselves. Um, and it's one of the very few instances in which you can break confidentiality and like get other people involved Mm -hmm. to get them the help they need. It's not the first thing you do. Like you, you're, you try to go from the least invasive to the most invasive, least invasive being like, Hey, like, let's talk about it. Maybe we have some more sessions, you know, like you start there to all the way being like, we need to get you into a hospital, Yeah. you know? Um, and it's kind of a philosophical, I think it's a philosophical question about what do people have the right to do to themselves? And how much do we allow people to potentially put themselves in harm's way? And it's, it's a, it's a quagmire. It's a really, really big quagmire. But I see the, I see the parallels in like, Hey, in order to protect you, I'm going to do something I normally wouldn't do, but I feel like I'm running out of other options, which is why I'm going here. Yeah. And like, that's what, that's, that's, I guess, a long winded way of getting to the parallel between like what uh, is happening on Voyager and what we try to do to protect people from hurting themselves. Uh, you mentioned suicide as one of the um, acceptable um, uh, contexts for breaking confidentiality. And that totally yeah. makes sense. And I appreciate you sharing that. Why are you intentionally trying to hurt yourself? I don't know. Are you trying to commit suicide? No. Then why? Because... 
Because if I sprain my ankle, at least I feel something. It's not just the pain. I don't feel anything. Not about my dead friends, not about Tom. You, my job. Uh, I think that's, you know, uh, self-harm, right? That's what she's doing. It's, it's a different, differently motivated. I, I, I would just love to get your um, Reader's Digest version. <laughs> Reader's Digest version. Okay. Does anyone know um, what that is anymore? Does anyone? Does it? <laughs> listeners, no tell us. Do you know what Reader's Digest is? <laughs> Are we getting that old where we're starting to date ourselves with those references? No. <laughs> so, suicide is usually a it's usually an acute crisis which means something set it off and it eventually ends like there's something there's something that happens that suddenly will tip someone over the edge into considering suicide and in that case as a therapist our job is just to try to keep them alive long enough until the crisis is over. And that option just suddenly kind of turns off in their head, you know? And like, that's a whole big topic that maybe we can do on another podcast, but that's like the short version of suicide. And it's, it's someone not wanting to feel pain anymore. You know, it's someone just saying like, this is too much and I want to opt out, you know? And so, and so you try to take away the too much, you know, like you just try to get it so that it's like they can tolerate it again. And just, Mm. and so that's, that's one way that you can conceptualize it. It, it, That really is a permanent solution to an impermanent problem. It doesn't feel like that to the person who is in that crisis, but it is a crisis and you, and you respond in a very particular way when that when all those red lights go on self-harm on the other hand it's not a solution to a problem it's a band-aid over something that feels awful you know like when when you cut yourself your body releases endorphins and for a little while you feel better after hurting yourself and Mm. it's it's really tragic body chemistry you know, in that way. But like, so in that way, doing it provides a sense of relief, which otherwise someone might not know how to feel any relief. So it's like, if I can hurt myself more, then I'll feel relief and won't have to feel so bad. You know, that's one way self-harm comes across. Um, And with Balana, I think she's right. Her experience really does track and makes sense to me. When you look at those corpses, how do you feel? Sad. Angry. Maybe a little guilty that I wasn't there to die with them. Not me. I don't feel anything at all. Valana, the Marquis were like our adopted family. I can understand you trying to block out that kind of you pain. You don't understand. Only being in these dangerous situa- situations when my adrenaline is high and my blood is pumping and it is really life or death, that's the only way I feel alive. Like that's, yeah. that is a very legitimate experience that people have. Yeah, it's a, a, a kind of natural antidepressant, but in the worst possible like mode. Yeah. 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 I, I, I hear that and I appreciate that. That's actually, I, I never thought about the fact that, yeah, of course, like there, you would have an endorphin release with causing pain because your body has to heal and that healing yeah. you're feeling 
healing, but you're healing something that you, you know, you're not healing the thing that needs to be healed. You're healing something else and getting the, the rush yeah. from that. that. That makes sense. I just want to say, if you're struggling, please talk to somebody. Um, there's a national suicide hotline and you don't have to be suicidal. They will just talk to you. But like, please, please reach out if you are experiencing any of this, because there are there are ways to feel better and we want to help you. So please don't be alone in this. You know, you're not, you don't have to be alone in this. Well said. Um, a couple other things. So Chakotay's therapy session with Palana. <laughs> oh, oh, why are you calling that a therapy session? Oh no. Well, it's why? like, it's why? like, the Mach- it's like, you know how a member back in learning curve, the Maki version of, um, like workplace grievance, HR yeah, yeah. <laughs> mediation was a punch to the face. <laughs> the Maki version of therapy is getting dragged onto the holodeck against your will to witness something traumatic to get you to talk about what's bothering you. <laughs> bring I bring this up because because I I we know I know without talking to you I know that this is not anything a therapist would ever actually do <laughs> or recommend, um, but it does feed into that like. For people who aren't, uh, let's say for people who are skeptical of therapy and mental health practice, um, seeing what Chakotay did and having it criticized as something that's wrong um, can feel like an indictment of the whole practice because as the episode depicts, it can be effective, right? It does get Bellana to talk about things. And I know that's problematic. Don't get me wrong. I struggle with this because it's a yes and, and I don't want it to be. Yes, and. But hear me out. Um, So one of the things that can make an experience traumatic is a loss of autonomy and a loss of control. Like that's, that's one of the basic ingredients of whether something becomes a traumatic experience or not. You're an antelope in Africa and a lion comes out of nowhere. If you're able to run away from the lion and get away, like that's still a scary experience, but like it's not as traumatic as getting pinned down by the lion and not being able to move. Do you you, you just kind of feel how those two things land very differently? Yeah. Yeah. So it's that kind of like loss of autonomy, loss of ability to escape that can create a traumatic experience. So the fact that Jakote forces her into the holodeck in that way automatically is kind of a like, oh no, like he's forcing her. There's a loss of control, loss of autonomy, not a great thing to throw in there. But sometimes you got to call people out on their shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's the end. That's the end. And I think there are other ways you could have done that with Bolana. Anyone could have done that with Bolana. Um, but, you know, you also can think about it as a case-by-case basis. She is, you know, you can make the argument, she is part Klingon. Maybe mm. what works for humans does not work for Klingons, and they require a different cultural approach. Like, you can totally make that argument. Even though she was creating these programs, she was spending so much time avoiding looking at what was really hurting her, you know, and what she really needed to deal with. And I think Jakotay being there with her to look at it, that actually was therapeutic. I just really wish he hadn't forced her on the holodeck. Yeah, it's, it's, 
it's wrong, but we know that the Maquis have a mode. We know that their their culture, yeah. their cultural perspective, if you want to call it a culture, their emotional perspective is imperfect, and it's going to manifest in all kinds of different ways. But yeah. certainly, the the his heart was in the right place. Our final episode takes us all the way to the third and final season of Star Trek Picard. Imposterous was written by Cindy Apple, directed by Dan Liu, and aired very recently in 2023. Since it is so recent, we're going to go ahead and issue a spoiler warning for the rest of the episode. Jack Crusher, the new one obviously, is having disturbing nightmares that play into this season's mystery box, because every season of live-action Trek these days simply must have a mystery box. Worf and Raffi are told by Worf's Starfleet handler to find an alternate means of investigating said mystery box. This leads to a confrontation with a Vulcan mafia boss in which Worf and Raffi are compelled to fight each other to the death because, you know, it's Star Trek. He allows her to mortally wound him and appears to die, but this is a ruse, and the pair recover the intel they require from the Vulcan. Anyway, in the wake of their Act 1 adventure with Vatic and the reveal of changeling infiltrators in Starfleet, Jack, Picard, Riker, and Seven of Nine prepare to face the music while Shaw reassumes command of the Titan. Starfleet sends over a shuttle from the USS Intrepid. Picard and company are astonished to find that the person sent to ream them out and investigate them for treason is a reinstated Rolaren, former Maquis fugitive and now commander in Starfleet. Jean-Luc is still seething from their last meeting, and both he and Laren harbor intense suspicion for each other. Guinans. You do remember Guinan, don't you? Put it down. I will kill you. Tell me who you really are. You tell me. How do I know you're not compromised? When you first came on the Enterprise, your Bajoran earring violated the uniform dress code. We've been through all of this. Yes, but you claimed it represented the family you'd lost, and I allowed it only to realize it was for your ego. This suspicion is undergirded by Dr. Crusher's discovery from their changeling corpse that their current enemy can bypass the blood test. Despite this suspicion escalating to the point of a Mexican standoff, it is actually the clarity with which they express their shared trauma over their pasts that both realize each is who they say they are. I believe that changelings have infiltrated every sphere of power in Starfleet, including key personnel. Ro, how is that possible? I don't know yet. I think that there are more on the Intrepid. I don't trust anyone, not the captain. I, I, I don't even trust the transporters on the ship. There have been fleet-wide issues for months. Your ship is not the only one with a changeling problem. There have been 12 incidents across multiple starships, all being kept quiet. I'm just connecting the dots. We also learned that Roe is Worf's intelligence handler. She leaves behind her Bajoran earring to Picard and departs the Titan, depending on Picard to continue her work. The changelings plant an explosive on her shuttle, and Ro chooses to sacrifice herself to give Picard the opportunity to escape. Before they convince Shaw to do so, Jack has a confrontation with four Starfleet security officers, opens mysterious red door in his mind, and brutally executes them. The officers turn out to be changelings, but how Jack knew this remains a mystery. 
As the Titan flees, Riker discovers that Rose Earring contained a data chip with her investigation and a comms link to Worf. So we've done a deep dive on one other episode of Picard. That was Nepenthe, which I think up until the third season was the best episode of Picard. And it was okay. Um, And a lot of it's, as we've alluded to a couple of times, has been pretty bad. I'm generally pretty positive on season three. Um, What do you think? Yay! I'm so glad to hear you say that. (laughs) For the most part. For the most part. (laughs) I have not finished Picard. Um, I've honestly not started Picard. Uh I've watched the episodes for this (laughs) podcast. Um, (laughs) Uh um, But I'm really glad to hear the season three um, is worthwhile, and I'm excited to check it out. And, uh, yeah, I want to know what's going on. Like, what's going on there? Well, (laughs) that presents an interesting opportunity. So Seven of Nine is a main character in this series. um, Yeah. Which may not have been clear from just watching Nepenthe. And... We, you know, we just did two episodes of Voyager. We did uh, three of them uh, a few weeks ago, back to back. Uh, I'm curious how she seems to you 30 years on. She's so human. She's so human. And I, I get that being around people more than people in a starship and 2030 whatever canon years have passed since Voyager like she would have she yeah she would have socialized more she would have developed like totally legit but it's almost like she was never a Borg and, and that yeah. that I find very curious you know Commander it's me Commander what Forge Commander Hanson I think I personally would have really been really curious to see what she would have been like if she, if there was just still a little bit of the the Borg behaviorisms in there, um, to me, it's it's almost like she's completely human. Mm-hmm. I I think it begs a really good question of like, shouldn't we want that to be possible? <laughs> you know, shouldn't we want to think that she can fully recover her humanity? But at the same time, like, does that? I don't know. Like, just mm-hmm. the way the way it worked out, I I feels there's something about it that that is puzzling to me. Yeah, they, well, I, I don't love, there, there's certain things I do like about Seven. I like that they lent, you may not know this yet, sorry if I'm spoiling it, but I don't think it's a huge thing. You know, Seven turns out to be pansexual or bisexual. Um, and I think that's, th- there are seeds planted for that in Voyager that obviously the writers at the time and Rick Berman were not going to lean into. Um, and they could now. Um, and I'm glad they did that, and that's that's good representation. It's nice to see. I think it fits her character. Um, on the other hand, they in the first season of Picard, especially, but also to an extent in the second season, kind of they they throw on all this weird action hero stuff that does not. I mean, they do it with a lot of the legacy characters. I don't want to have a whole tangent on that. I'm just saying, like this season of Picard is sort of trying to take said they put her back in Starfleet. And kind of backpedaling a little bit and finding a happy medium between the bad, like unrealistic, unmotivated development they gave her in their first two seasons and where we saw her at the end of Voyager. Um, And this feels more or less right where they they, they couldn't just say, well, suddenly she's back to being more robotic. That wouldn't feel right either. Um, But I, I, I do know what you mean. Um, there's, there are some missed opportunities with seven, 
for sure. <laughs> I do appreciate being able to see Jerry Ryan like act more. Yeah. You know, it's like she's such a fabulous actress and she was a little boxed in with Seven of Nine on Voyager. You know, when she got to pretend to be other people, suddenly it was like, whoa, you have to see like she has so many tools, yeah. you know, that she can use. So I really, I really am appreciative of being able to see Jerry Ryan just be awesome in that way. But as a character, yeah, part of me is just like, oh, I, it's almost like it never happened. <laughs> well, it's an interesting... And that sits weird for me. Yeah. It's an interesting contrast with um, our, our main focus of this episode uh, of Picard, which is Picard himself and Roe, who comes back for this yeah. one episode, which yeah. is a huge surprise. <laughs> when I, even having watched the show from, from be- the beginning, it was like, what? <laughs> um, and the contrast being that she and Picard, despite going through a lot in the last 30 years that we've seen a lot of, well, at least Picard's side and heard about what happened to Roe in this episode, are still kind of right where they left off in that conversation. Remember from um, a few weeks ago when we talked about preemptive strike, you remember the last conversation they had was in that yeah. bar uh, on the DMZ planet, her pretending to be a prostitute. I thought that I could do it. Even though it meant helping the Cardassians, even though it meant betraying people. We're fighting against them. Now I'm not sure where I stand. And then yeah. eventually choosing to betray Starfleet. And that brings them to that conversation where she says... Blind faith in any institution does not make one honorable. It's, to me, that's like the classic Antigone question, you know? Like, do you obey an unjust law? You mm. know, like, what what is what are the values by which you're living your life and what do you do when the institution that should represent those values doesn't and there's a conflict there who do you choose yeah and it's ironic for picard too because in the what we've seen of him since the end of tng in that episode with roe is he has come he has seen many times the uh, flaws with Starfleet, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And he even, we had Star Trek Insurrection in between where he violated orders because he felt like they were wrong and he disobeyed the institution, right? And be, out of a sense of honor. Yeah. So for him for him to be stuck in this place with Roe, despite having life experience that should confirm and give him empathy for where she came from. We are betraying the principles upon which the Federation was founded. It will destroy the Baku. Just as cultures have been destroyed in every other forced relocation throughout history. Jean-Luc, we're only moving 600 people. How many people does it take, Admiral, before it becomes wrong? Is, I think, really telling and very human, disappointing, but also very real. Isn't that most people disappointing but real? Aww. No, no one's real. <laughs> Only I'm real. Everyone else is a figment of my imagination. Did you not know that? You didn't okay. get the memo. I'm sorry. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so to me, yeah, I think that is very telling, like you say. And, you know, I think so much about, you know, when when we're triggered, you know, or when something happens and our reaction is like almost disproportionate to the actual stimulus to what happened. 
to me that that that's indicating there's something much deeper that's being activated by the situation like it's kind of like an iceberg like this little thing is on the surface but underneath this is huge thing um and so i wonder if for picard it's less about the institution than it is about them like what mm. did it mean for him that ro laren betrayed him that he put his faith in her and she and she didn't do what he thought she should do you know like i don't i actually think that has a lot more to do with like what they meant to each other and what they represented to each other and that's where the betrayal is and that's where the the wound is still fresh and live because it's never it's never healed it just you know yeah and and yeah as soon as she comes back whoop it's like time travel it's all right there it's right present it's just as intense as it was how many years ago yeah, it's interesting because she it's been 30 years and she is now a rank, maybe a rank and a half above where she was at the end of TNG in Preemptive Strike. And mm-hmm. she had to go through this circuitous route her own way to get to the place. You know, Picard rescued her from being in jail, like gave her a chance yeah. to be in Starfleet on his terms. And she rejected that and found a way to get to essentially the same place as he kind of wanted her to go, but her own way, following her own ideals. And and in some ways that might be the thing that is so grating to Picard is that independence from his intentions. You have no idea what it was like living under your relentless judgment. This wasn't about judgment. We had a bond based on mutual respect. You betrayed everything I believed in. No. You wanted to mold me in your image, your mentorship, your affection. It was conditional. Do you dare to question my honor? I joined the Maquis because belonging there meant standing up to injustice, even if it meant betraying your beloved Starfleet. That was me. But you could never understand that because you confuse morality with duty, and that, Admiral, is your dishonor. I believed in you. Only when it was easy for you. If I meant so much, you would have understood. You broke my heart. And she broke mine. You know, we all have parents and mentors and and even the ones who, I think people in the position of being a parent or a mentor can make this mistake sometimes where they sincerely want the best for their ward, um, but they only know maybe one or two ways for them to get there. And if they don't, and the process becomes more important than the goal. And, you yeah. know what I mean? And it's a, it, 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 they, people take it personally um, when, they, when they probably shouldn't. Yeah, that, that's true most of the time. People take things personally when they, didn't, they don't need to. Yeah. Yeah, I, but I also think it's, it's a beautiful irony, maybe, that it's through expressing how much they've hurt each other that they realize that they are who they say they are. It's almost as if that pain is a unique identifier, like a fingerprint. They're just like, oh, okay, there's no one else. Who hurts me like you. (laughs) Who hurts me like you. And there's no one else who could understand that, you know? Your Bajoran has improved. Oh, I have been rehearsing this conversation for 30 years. You know, it reminds me of um, the situation that the Voyager crew were in um, where they're reconnected to this trauma, but 
unable to, you know, they're, they're distanced from it in their case by physical distance and Picard and Rose case by time. Yeah. Um, and you end up freezing other people, but you know, the way, for example, Janeway froze Mark, her fiance is like, yeah. Oh, you're waiting for me still. Uh, Picard froze Roe and she, him too, to be fair, uh, in this position of where they left off with him sitting in that yeah. chair in his ready room, just pissed off. Um, and they seething, seething. Oh my God. I can picture that right now. Yeah. Yeah. So good. It's a little sad that they finally work through that trauma just enough only for her to die. Um, but you know, sometimes life is that way. I think it's one of the more unintuitive lessons that people learn as, as we get older and hopefully wiser Uh, especially in kind of in this Western culture, which really values individualism. Like it's me and I can do everything. And like where we really have lost the sense and importance of interdependence Mm. and of, and of being in relationship with other people. So because Picard and Roe were separated they were having, you know, this imaginary argument with someone who couldn't respond, with someone who couldn't be in relationship with them, with someone who couldn't be another subjective subject. You know, it's like yelling at a painting or yelling at a statue. The statue's not going to yell back at you. Mm-hmm. And because of that, you're only ever going to get back what you send them. It's just a direct reflection and nothing changes. But in relationship, the things, the the energy and the communication that you send each other can change. It, it gets transmuted in a way that isn't often possible when you're just by yourself yelling at the universe, you know, and and it is I thought it was really powerful to see how, hey, you know, that brief interaction changed so much, you know, it, it was this really kind of alchemical transformation that could only happen when they actually talked to each other. There's a parallel here between what we see in uh, our imposters in the Picard episode where, uh, as we mentioned, Picard and Roe discover that they are who they say they are. You know, they yeah. ferret out a lack of impersonation, imposters, right? Um, through the recognition of that of a shared trauma that they have from their past, and it there's a parallel between that and what happens uh, to the Voyager crew when they get those letters from home, and of course the fallout that happens specifically with Balana um, in Extreme Risk where they are forced by the trauma of the news of the Maquis being massacred to live more truthfully. Like the truth is essentially revealed through this pain and this trauma. And it's hard. And, and we can see, in, we saw with Balana specifically, how it could be devastatingly bad to the point where it causes severe clinical depression and um, self-harm even which is almost an argument against truth when I, when I put it that way. <laughs> like it almost suggests that we should live in um, little hamster Ignorance balls. Yeah. 
exactly. But I, I, I don't believe that personally. But um, th- you know, the, the, is the, trauma good for you? Is, is that tra- what you're asking? <laughs> that's that's one question, <laughs> which I feel like I must know the answer to. But maybe maybe it's more complex than I realize. Um, but it's also that therapy is, at least as I said, in the mind of the lay person, um, which includes me, the the alleviation of trauma. It's about undoing mm-hmm. trauma, and when trauma is portrayed as revelatory about something true and real, it's hard to see the value in alleviating something that's true. I mean, you're, you're, you're starting to wade into like existential philosophy and, and actually existential psychology in a way as well. Like some questions of like, why do we suffer and why do you die? Like there's no solution to that. There's just like, how do you, how do you live with these things in your life? I think the idea that we can be healed to the point of not being touched by our, by life, like that's, that's a false promise. You know, I think that there are definitely some things that we can heal from, you know, so much of PTSD is tied to a biological stress response that has a way of being untied, you know, that you can heal, you know, you can help people grow and you can help people develop themselves, especially if that, if that had been stilted in the past for whatever reason, like you can start to give people what they need in order to thrive. And I I think that is a really reparative and healing part of of relationship and of psychotherapy and of just like trying to get through this world. But the idea that we can undo suffering as if it never existed, I actually think a, that's not an attainable goal and, and be a disservice, you know? And, and I think maybe that's what I take issue with, with seven of nine. It's Mm. almost like that Borg part of her life was completely erased. And I'm much more interested in what it would mean for her that she if it was if she was still more impacted by that. Like how she integrates, right? How she would integrate the trauma she as integrates. she as she matures, yeah. Yeah, because I I think like sometimes you're going to have these imprints with you. Like we're all going to have these this wounding within us. And how do we learn how to live with that? You know, how do we learn to have meaning in our lives by the, by our experiences, by our relationships, by the things that happen to us? How can they mean something versus try to erase it like it didn't happen? I'm curious, Evan. What do you think about all this? Messages, the possibility of getting home. It lacks any emotional resonance for me. I've never even been to Earth. You realize you may have family there. That had not occurred to me. You could have cousins, grandparents. There might be more emotional resonance than you think. Like a rock tumbler, you know, like we all go through this life and we get tossed and jolted and dented and like bent out of shape just by being in this world. And I don't think the idea that you can heal completely so it's as if you're this unpolished gem 
you know, as if life has never touched you. You lose your unique identifiers in that way. How are you you if you're not touched by the world? You know, it, it, it's a beautiful irony. And I think being able to have meaning despite our wounds sits better for me than trying to erase the things that happened to us as if they never did. But so how can we how can we make meaning out of the things that happen to us and try to live our lives with as little dysfunction as possible? You know, as we consider these Maquis characters now in the aftermath of of where they started and in the aftermath of their cause, you know, we, we in our last episode, we talked about Michael Eddington and he exhibited a lot of similar characteristics that we're, that we're seeing here. You know, he started out the episode in Blaze of Glory, the last, his last episode, depressed, right? Lying in that prison cell. I used up all my tears when the Dominion slaughtered the Marquis. I sat here in this cell for three days and listened to the reports as they came in. In those three days, everyone and everything I cared about was wiped out. A similar thing to what Bolana Torres is going through. Um, and then we can imagine what Roe went through um, in her journey as well, uh, being lucky enough to have survived, um, as, as you had brought up before. And, you know, he, Michael Eddington, got his little blaze of glory, right? He got his, um, his way of channeling that romantic self-image that we've talked so much about in these episodes into something that maybe not as grand as he was hoping for, um, but at least he did something. He saves a few people. What is more romantic than a glorious death in defense of a lost cause? He died fighting for what he believed in. And you know, Balana doesn't have that luxury. She is an engineer on a ship trying to get home, and she has certainly demonstrated a lot of anger over the over the years. But it's it's interesting that her. It's the lack of her confrontation. It's the lack of, of her being mad and like having a problem with people and, and fighting with people is the sign that there's something wrong. Until you decide to be more forthcoming, you'll remain under the doctor's supervision, which means you're off the shuttle project. I'm sorry. I'm not. Now I know there's something wrong. And then we look at Roe here, she probably went through something like what Torres went through, some phase of depression, having her Maki family wiped out. But we've seen that she has gone back to the well. She's gone back to Starfleet and found something else. Despite not having gotten over the trauma fully, yeah. she did eventually find a way to grow out of the, the self-image issue that plagues the Maki. And find a different way to be Rolaren that wasn't Rolaren the Maquis rebel. I was court-martialed. I was sent to prison again. But due to my history with uh, terrorist groups, I was recruited into Starfleet Intelligence. They put me into an arduous rehabilitation program where I proved myself, worked my way up slowly, again. And I guess it just begs the question for me about when something you've attached your identity to, whether it is a political cause, dubious political cause, or um, a job maybe, 
or a role in, a, in your family and in society, whatever it might be. Especially for people who have built that self-image on this anger and this righteous cause and had a place to channel that feeling when it's taken away, like what, where do you direct it? Where do you put it so that you could be yourself? I think that go, that goes back to, again, like that kind of like one of the ingredients of trauma is not being able to act in the face of a threat. And so, you know, like you said, Michael Ennington got to go out in a blaze of glory. You know, Rolaren got to do something. Balana is stuck in the Delta Quadrant and it's much harder for her to be able to do something with the emotions and the experience that she's having. Like, where does she channel, channel that? You know, it's, it's, um, it's a good question. I can tell that the answer I'm looking at is through a therapeutic lens, um, which I guess given my, (laughs) given my, yeah, right. Given my role in this podcast makes sense. But, um, that's just a way to say, I feel like there are different ways to answer this question, but as someone, but from this perspective, uh, Again, it's this existential thing of you can't change the universe and you can't rewrite history. And so how do you accept it? And I think it's really, there's a power in being witnessed in, in the struggles of your life. Like, you know, I think Bolana when she was doing all that stuff on the holodeck, she was doing it by herself. She was trying to deal with all that anger and hurt and sadness and guilt, all of it. She was like trying to hold it all herself. And that's a lot for one person to hold. You know, you could say that's more than one person should, should hold on their own. So what it was when she got Chakotay involved, it was when she was able to be with somebody who could witness her and her experience that it was changed. You know, again, it's that relational quality of when you, share something between two people it can change where sometimes with yourself it there's no other elements in there to affect it you know in any kind of way when i was six my father walked out on me when i was 19 i got kicked out of starfleet a few years later i got separated from the maquis and just when i start to feel safe you tell me that all of our old friends have been slaughtered the way I figure it, I've lost every family I've ever had. You're not gonna lose us. You're stuck with us. You can't promise me that. No, I suppose I can't. Losing people's inevitable. And sometimes it happens sooner than we expect. But I can't promise you that the people on this ship aren't about to let you stop living your life or break your neck on the holodeck. You're gonna have to find another way to deal with this. And just being witnessed and validated in the, like, this was awful. And I see that it was awful. And and sitting with someone not trying to change or fix it, you know, is, is another skill. Again, the point, the point of healing is not to be as if it never happened. And likewise, the point is not to fix anything. It's, it's how, how can you live with what has happened? And I think being witnessed is a big part of that so that you don't feel so alone in it. I had a, I had a professor last year talking about depression and um, talking about 
what it feels like to sit on the edge of a void, you know, to sit on the edge of a black hole wanting to just fall in and be annihilated, you know, like that feeling. And how do you sit with someone who is on the edge of a black hole, who's on the edge of a void? You can't make the black hole disappear. You know, there's, you can't change it for them. You can't fix it for them. Trying to is a disservice, but you can be with them in that experience. And so they're not alone because sitting at the edge of a void feels very different when you're sitting at the edge of a void together. I admire your conviction in the face of certain defeat. Though doomed, your effort will be valiant. And when you die, you will die for land and for honor. Your children will understand that they are dying for a worthy cause. Long after the battle is over, their courage will be remembered and extolled. Remembered by who? So Elliot, I want to thank you for proposing that we do this five-part Maki miniseries. It's been intense, um, but also like really cool just to do such a deep dive and like look at it for for both its like trajectory, like the really long arc and how it changed and, and how it evolved, and but also just to do a really really deep dive into like these, you know, social and political dynamics. Um, I really appreciate it. So just thank you. Of course. Thanks for putting up with this for five episodes. <laughs> <laughs> but because we've been focused on this for so long, I actually think I've started to notice like the the maki like groups just in my life and in the real world. You know, people who are saying, hey, the status quo, I'm not going to accept that and I'm going to try to change it even though the odds are against me. You know, um, mm. you know, I think about Black Lives Matter, you know, and I think about, um, you know, Bernie Sanders, you know, um, all those years ago when, you know, really, really trying just to shake up the establishment and have a new order for things. And, and you know, self-disclosure, I support both those organizations and I see how similar they are to the Maquis, you know, in, in Star Trek and how, you know, they're the underdogs trying to say this could be better and, you know, the backlash that, you know, the dominant culture has against these people who are trying to change things, not realizing like, hey, the dominant culture doesn't work for these people. That's why they're trying to change it. And yet people not understanding that and not having the empathy to be like in their shoes and actually go into that relational dialogue about what works for you, what works for me, how can we both get people get these things how can we both get these needs met versus there being this like power dominance control over dynamics, which are historically so entrenched, but maybe that is the optimist in me thinking that we can change it, even though the realist in me sees how hard it is. Well, and that's, it's a telling comparison that you make Elizabeth, because it's the reason we've said a few times, but it, we have to repeat at the end here, the reason why, at least in my opinion, and I, th- I think you share this opinion, the Maquis didn't work as a political subplot within Star Trek 
as being a part of the Federation because the Federation is not the United States or any other yeah. real modern um, empire or country or whatever. Uh, it just isn't. It's built on different a different foundation. Um, and that being said, the the desire on the writer's part to create a an, an analogous uh, vessel for that political feeling that you identify yeah. as something that exists in our world, I think is well intended. And what we have parsed out through this deep dive, I think, is a character type more than anything else, more than a cohesive political message. Uh, and in the interest of also being in full disclosure, I, uh, in the same way as you, <laughs> I can pull out all my Bernie tickets or my things to my Jeremy Corbyn, all that stuff. Just anyone watching this, this, that's, it is what it is. Um, looking at it from afar, looking at it removed from a political situation, which is real for us, looking at these Maquis and dealing with their Cardassian DMZ issue. What we've seen yeah. is that, as you put it in our last segment, we're dealing with people who need to be witnessed and aren't by the dominant culture yeah. in this case. Um, are, yeah. th their needs are not being met in, in that respect. And I think that's really fascinating. And it offers us the opportunity to, at the very least, diffuse difficult p political situations at times by offering to bear witness to people mm -hmm. that are struggling in that way. It doesn't solve political problems. I just want to be clear about that. There is no replacement for revolution. You can't replace revolution with therapy <laughs> as much as we might want to. <laughs> but you can de-escalate. Can that be a bumper sticker? You can't, <laughs> you can't replace revolution with therapy. I think I when that. you open your own practice, that's going to be your tagline. <laughs> great, great. All right, fast forward five years. Let's see how this goes. Let's go. Um, no, I, I hear you. Like therapy is not the solution for everything. But you know, one reason I decided to, you know, change careers and, and do this was because I really do fundamentally believe that if we can change the way people relate to each other and relate to themselves, that has a ripple effect throughout the rest of the world and the rest of society. But like we have to build these kind of interpersonal skills and, you know, have in emotional intelligence and raise the bar for the way people interact with each other. And I think therapy is right now one of the more effective mechanisms for, for that change, you know? And so it's like, you know, that's my grassroots revolution right here. <laughs> and I, and, and to your point about how do we have people be witnessed and, ha and witness each other, you know, there's this idea of in order to understand, you have to be understood. And so really, really taking the time to witness someone else so they feel seen, so their defenses go down, so then you can share your side of the story. No one does that. <laughs> no one, do like not enough people do that. Yeah. Um, but I think that's, that's a really important skill is to let people know you see them. And then when they feel seen, they can receive what you have to say. You know, it's, it's a, a nice trick for couples, you know, couples who are fighting. Be like, yeah, okay, it just, just try it. It really works. That's well said as always, Elizabeth. Uh, thank you for doing this big deep dive with us. Uh, for our next episode, we are going to be taking a look at scapegoats in Star Trek. <laughs>
Okay. Um, so I'm looking forward to having another great discussion with you about that next time. Uh, thank you. Thank you to our listeners and patrons. Uh, comments, reviews, uh, likes, and subscriptions are all always appreciated. I look forward to discussing scapegoats with you. It's something I've been uh, studying in school. The idea about how a system scapegoats an individual for its own benefit and i'm really excited to explore that with you i can't wait to hear what you have to say about that topic elizabeth i'm sure it'll be wonderful as it always is and uh until next time until next time Why can't I talk? (laughs) We're tired. We can do it.